A young woman is the victim of a crime. That makes her the perfect witness. The problem is, the crime was murder. And then we travel to 1989 Iraq to take a look at a story of a UFO crashing during the reign of Saddam Hussein. Is there any truth to the story that Hussein immediately sent out special forces with two missions? One, secure the UFO. And two, hunt down any survivors. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. We have a lot of stuff to cover, so let's introduce our show supporter for today. He donated during one of my live streams, so we want to give you guys your shout-outs too. Flying in on a homemade rocket ship. It's all janky and stuff. Pieces are falling off. It's UG. Everyone give a round of applause to UG. He donated all of his money to support the show, so we couldn't afford a rocket. Hey, Jason, I got a rocket just like yours. Of course you do, UG. Of course you do. Get off that because I think it's about to blow up. You guys can't support the show financially. That's fine too. Just help spread the word about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. We pull UG out of the wreckage of his rocket ship after it crashed. I'm going to toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're going to leave behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are headed out to Yorkville, Canada. Jason Jalopy is driving through the highways and byways, headed up to Yorkville. It's November 2nd, 2002. And when we get to Yorkville, there's just an office building. Just a single office building. It's an economically depressed town. But it's just an office building, you know what I mean? It's nothing spectacular about it. But in this office building, Lisa Posloons works. She's a 38-year-old woman. She's a real estate agent. And she works on the fifth floor of the building. And one night, it's time for her to go home. And she's like going through paperwork and stuff like that. She's like, oh man, I probably should have picked a better job than a real estate agent. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just moving paper from one drawer to another. I've been doing it for years. And no one's caught on yet. She's working late. She's moving paperwork around. Time to go. But a couple hours later, her sister notices that Lisa doesn't come home. She's sitting there. She's like, oh man, Lisa's supposed to be here a while ago. Which is the worst feeling, right? Because that thing's going in the back of your head. You're thinking, oh, you know, they probably just are running late. But then you're always thinking, what if they got in a horrible car accident? What if something bad happened to them? I hate that feeling. But we all suffer from it. And 99.9% of the time, Lisa comes in. She's like, oh, my God, you won't believe it. I was walking down the street. This homemade rocket came out of nowhere, crashed in the middle of the avenue. Lisa's sister calls the cops and says, hey, she hasn't been home for a while. The co- Again, let, let this be a reminder to you. You do not have to wait 24 hours to report a missing person. You can report them right away. She calls the cops that night. Cops go to the place of business. They look around. They're walking around the office building. They go up to her office. They're trying to figure out where she could be. Cops are walking through the building. They see a utility closet. Red stain coming out of the closet. And the cops look at each other and they're like, your turn. They both say it at the same time, jinx. They both owe each other cokes. But one of them does have to open the closet door. This is probably the end of the jokes. Because now we're confronted with the dead body of Lisa Poslins. The police's first suspect was a man named Rue Marquis. He was the janitorial superintendent. He was working there. He had keys for all the rooms, had codes for all the rooms. There was no other obvious suspects. He's there. He has access. Does he have motive? 
Who knows? Like, did he have something against her? Did he want to murder someone that night or any night? They don't know. They don't know any of this stuff, but of course they take him as a suspect. He does get cleared, but it's one of those, like, uh, don't go anywhere type of clearing things. He freezes in place. He's totally frozen. He's like, can I have something to drink? They're all, no, you have to stay there. For about four months, he's cleared, but he's still on the suspicious list. And one night, he didn't quit his job, which is weird. I would quit a job after a murder took place there. I would be like, I'm out. But maybe that would look super suspicious, but still, or maybe he was, I don't know. I wouldn't do that, especially if they didn't know who murdered the person. I would not stay there. But he sticks around. And one night he's working in the office and he's applying a shine to this black tabletop. (laughs) And he sees a reflection in the tabletop. Now, not his reflection. (laughs) That wouldn't be shocking. He's like, what? I heard about these things are called mirrors, but I've never seen one in real life. He sees the reflection of someone else in the room. He looks up and standing next to the table is Lisa Poslins. He gasps. And all she does is point at the table and then disappear. Now, after after I changed my underwear, I would assume. I don't know what I would assume from that. I missed the spot. Like, she's coming back from paradise to tell me I'm still not doing a good job. But what Rui thinks... First off, he thinks someone should learn how to pronounce my name. But then what Rui thinks is that... Wait a second. She's pointing at the black tabletop. She's obviously been here. Her ghost has flown around here. And I've polished tabletops of all sorts of colors in this building. Why is she pointing at the black tabletop? That's when he remembers Nelson de Jesus. 36-year-old employee, former employee, who always wore black. Rui's like, hmm, it's interesting. He always wore black. Her ghost points at a black table. That, that That's all I need. He actually said there was more stuff. He goes, once Nelson referred to Lisa as hot. He told Rui, hey, man, isn't she hot? So he wears black clothing. A ghost points at something black. He says a woman's hot equals he's a murder suspect now. But Rui's like, okay, all that makes sense. I've watched enough detective shows. I could totally be one of those. But on the other hand, I am, I'm kind of cleared, but I'm under suspicion of murdering this woman. Should I go to the cops? They'll probably think I'm crazy. He thinks about it for a while. And then he goes, you know what? Knocks on the door. He wakes up a cop at three in the morning. How'd you find out where I lived? Uh, Never mind. I looked you up on Facebook. He tells the cops at the police station, I assume, not visiting their houses. I think I know who did it. Uh, This guy, Nelson, he always wore black and he said she was hot once. Um, He might have murdered her. And he says, that's not all the evidence I have. I also have this. If you didn't believe that, her ghost showed up and pointed at a black table. And the cops are like, yeah, it's not really good evidence, but we, we don't have anything else to go off of. They decide to check. This is this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. Not the ghost story. I actually believe that part of it. This next part's ridiculous. So Nelson used to work at the office building. And then he's not working there anymore. That doesn't automatically make you a suspect. Wearing black all the time doesn't automatically make you a suspect. Saying someone's hot doesn't automatically make you a suspect. Nelson, when they checked him out, he had a previous arrest. Doesn't necessarily make you a suspect. He kidnapped and raped a 17-year-old girl. That should make you a suspect. 
That should he should have been the, they should have said who worked here, who used to work here, and then just start running priors. And to make it even worse, kidnapped and raped a 17-year-old. He did two years in prison for that. Just two. That's all. So anyways, they go and they talk to him. And they get his DNA. And the DNA... You pretty much know where this is going. The DNA matched. And when the cop showed up, he, like, threw something out of his car or out of... He's just sitting in his bedroom. He throws it in his living room. The cops are like, we'll just walk over here. But he tried to dispose of a rape kit. So it was like a... Generally, they have like rape kits and murder kits and thief kits is usually what you'll see. Thief kits, I have more familiarity with. It is a little bundle or a package that will have like lockpicking stuff in it, ceramic cubes for smashing windows. You can use a blood pressure cuff to uh, pop open a window and get a get something, get a Slim Jim in there. Slim Jim is part of a thief kit. What are those called? Dump keys. The, uh, the keys that are grounded down. Bump keys, bump keys. So, you know, and you, if you care, if you just have a bump key on you, that's super suspicious. But if you have a bump key and a lockpick set, some porcelain cubes, that's a thief kit. And they'll, they'll, they can charge you with that. It's called having burglary tools is what they can charge you with. Uh, I, su- I don't I assume a rape kit would have none of that stuff. And it might, but it, I'm assuming it has like duct tape and rope and stuff like that. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, but burglary kits, thief kits, you'll run into those. They're far more common. Murder kits. Murder kits <laughs> basically just a knife. Oh, it's my kit. But yeah, you can charge him with having those tools. So they found him with that. His DNA matched. He was found guilty. Luckily, he got life with no parole for 25 years. So it's interesting. I read different articles on this, obviously, when I was researching it. One article is just the facts. Um, in the Globe and Mail, which is a newspaper, it talks just about the conviction and the crime and everything like that. The Clermont Sun, it's another newspaper. They're the ones who actually go more into detail with the ghost thing. And I'm surprised, one, I'm surprised this story is not more popular. Because there is a subgenre of true crime where ghosts solve their crime. There's not a lot of them. There's maybe like five or six. We've covered a couple on this show. I actually had a sneaking suspicion that I've already covered this one as well. So if I did, just ignore it. I tried checking, but... But yeah, it's one of those stories that it is possible that she came back from beyond the grave to help point out, literally point out her murderer. Now, she's really lucky she did it in front of Rui, who was polishing a table of the color of clothes he wore. Like, that. there's a lot of coincidences that had to play a part, but it turned out that Nelson was the murderer based on the DNA and priors and the kit and all that stuff, so... Very, very bizarre story. It makes you wonder why more ghosts don't come back to solve crimes. But it could be because there's such an abstract set of circumstances. If someone else was working there that night, she pointed at the table and that person never knew Nelson. They'd be like, what? I missed the spot. There, ghost, are you fine? Might not even recognize the ghost. Might have just been super scared that a woman materialized in a room. But yeah, you wonder why there aren't more ghosts like walking around neighborhoods being like, like just pointing in windows. Or maybe there are. Wouldn't that be creepy to think? Like right now there's a ghost pointing at your neighbor's window. Like if you looked out right now, you'd see a ghost pointing at your neighbor's window as he's sitting there eating Cheerios, watching The Price is Right. You're like, oh, The Price is Right is on awesome. Totally ignore the ghost. But then you realize your neighbor did some horrible deed. And got away with it. Or did they? 
technically they did because they're still free, but UG, I'm going to give you the keys to the Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind Yorkville, Canada. A murder was just solved with the help of a ghost. You know who else solves murders? Batman. You know what's funny? He doesn't really solve that many, he doesn't really solve that many crimes, does he? He just beats people up. I mean, I guess like the crime, basically it's a bunch of guys in Riddler costumes robbing a bank. He's like, I wonder who's up to this. It must be the Penguin. Like, does he ever go, man, there's a horrible, like, crime... I read Batman comic books, and, like, every so often they'll have, like, a like a one-off issue where it's, like, some guy's, like, beating up a kid, and the kid will be like, help me, Batman, and Batman will help him. But then they'll have, like, a four-issue arc where it's like, the Joker is making fish smile, and... You think? Anyways, anyways. In a world without Superman, and an alien invasion is on its way, is it possible that the Justice League can stop it this time, find out March 18th when Zack Snyder's Justice League premieres on HBO Max. Ben Affleck, Gal Gadot, Jason Momoa, Ezra Miller, and possibly Henry Cavill. If you haven't seen any of the trailers, Superman's still alive, spoiler alert. Combine their might, their characters, not the actors. Combine their might to take on Darkseid, Steppenwolf, and Granny Goodness. It's another, it's another villain in that franchise. <laughs> so ridiculous. But, but, watch Justice League, March 18th, only on HBO Max, rated R. Is it Granny Goodness or Granny Good? It doesn't matter, the promo's over. Jeez, <laughs> look at me like, what are you talking about? You barely are getting through these promos. This one was worse than yesterday's. UG flies on out to Iraq, and guys, it's 1989. This is actually leading up to the first Gulf War. It's only a couple years away, so we got to get prepared. Dun 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 dun. Rock music's playing. Dun 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 dun. It's super loud. We like can't hear instructions. People are falling out of the helicopter. We don't hear their cries for help, but it's okay. You're still on board. UG's still piloting it, and I'm still playing the drums. Dun 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 dun. It's July 1989. We're actually headed to Kirkuk. That's in the Taimen province in Iraq. There's a bunch of people living in town and they look up one night. They see a fireball streaking across the sky. They watch it crash into a nearby mountain range. Ward gets back to Baghdad in fairly short time that something crashed in the countryside. So, of course, you're thinking, of course, this must be the Americans. They're, they're really going to crash and stuff. They love crashing stuff. Let's send out some vehicles. Maybe we'll scavenge some, like, stealth bomber parts. At the very least, <laughs> at the very least, it's a nice day trip. Saddam Hussein's wearing Bermuda shorts. He has a little Mai Tai. Let's go, guys. He sends out the military, and what they find is... A wrecked vehicle. Basically looks like a giant bullet. Embedded in the mountainside. Steam and smoke still lifting out of the wreckage. I added that detail. It doesn't say that in the notes. But it's dynamic. It looks cool. Basically was a bullet. Had a cylinder. Had a sharp tip. It was 39 feet long. 8 feet around. And as the soldiers are approaching it, they're looking at this. This doesn't look like any vehicle they've seen in any intelligence briefing. It definitely is nothing that they have. They see an opening in the back of the craft. 
The soldiers are creeping forward. They're seeing this huge opening in this craft. They step inside. <laughs> spooky, spooky door opens up. There's a little girl in the corner. Ring around the rosy. It's a spooky. It's probably not spooky, but it's spooky because it shouldn't be there. It's out of place. They see all sorts of electronical equipment lining the walls. Troops are moving through this vessel, and they see sitting at the front of it a figure. It's not moving, though. They walk up to it, and they look. It's dead. The pilot is dead, and the pilot is not human. What they see in the pilot's seat is what we would call a gray alien. Doesn't seem to have a gray skin tone. It seems to be more of a humanoid skin tone, but it has a large head, large eyeballs, four fingers. It's five feet tall and is slumped in its seat, dead. So, of course, they got to call for backup. They got to figure out a way to move this vessel. Nobody wants to touch this body. It's super gross. But the commander on the scene is looking at this thing and he's looking at the opening in the back and he's kind of trying to figure stuff out and He comes up with a hypothesis. He tells his men, I think what we're looking at is only part of the craft. I'll bet you anything, there's an escape pod that jettisoned off of it. And the Iraq commander's like, we must find this escape pod. The droids cannot escape with those plans. The Rebel Alliance will pay for this. He starts ordering the men to find the escape pod. Scour the mountains, do whatever you need to do. Just find that ship. They're like, oh, super scared of him all of a sudden. He's cosplaying in the middle of the desert as Darth Vader. That's dedication. But they do. They start searching for this escape pod. And a couple days later, he, 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 he. And they're looking at each other like, is that you? Is that, is that you? No, that's not me. Is that you? No. He, he. And they start moving pushing brush aside and stuff like that. They're expecting to see Michael Jackson hiding in there. But no. They move aside brush, and they see a gray alien crouch down. Obviously scared. You don't have to have a human face to look scared. Also, stuff that's brave doesn't normally go, hee, hee, hee. He's making these high-pitched squeaking sounds. Come with us, weirdo. <laughs> they, they lead him away. They're really hoping to get Michael Jackson's autograph. They're super disappointed. By this time, Saddam Hussein has actually started the process of moving the crashed UFO to a place that's east of Ebril. Now, apparently, in this region, there are these natural caverns. And he figures this is actually a really good setup because we don't have to do much excavation. It's already here. You know what else was? You know what else lived in caverns? <laughs> Batman! But Saddam Hussein is not concerned about promos for Justice League, Zack Snyder's Justice League. They move this. UFO into these underground caverns that they've now converted into a hangar because Saddam Hussein knows that this isn't U.S. technology or Russian technology. He actually is very well aware of the existence of aliens and he goes, the worst thing that can happen right now is these aliens show up to retrieve the craft. We need to hide it until we can study it because we have our backs against the wall. There's very few people in the world who like me. (laughs) <laughs> a little tear comes from his eye. They're like, it's okay, Saddam. The world will like you someday. He's like, you mean it? So Iraq and Saddam Hussein never had a big alliance. Iran was constantly coming after him. Saudi Arabia was constantly coming after him. The United States was the one who eventually put the nail in their coffin. 
I mean, aliens showing up would be worse than all those people put together. So he moves it into this underground cavern. He figures, I can get, actually get some good stuff from this. Hopefully reverse engineer this thing. Like, that would be ideal. So they take the body of the one alien, they put him in cryogenics. Because, you know, maybe they can reverse engineer him or just turn him into some sort of biological weapon. The other alien, they actually interrogate for two weeks. He didn't say anything other than, ee, ee, ee. I mean, there's obviously a language barrier there. He's from another star system. He only says, ee. And he's being interrogated in Iraq in 1989. So I don't think they're just like, tell us more. Tell us more. I'm sure that he was being tortured. Which would be, could you imagine traveling across the cosmos to crash land in Iraq in 1989? I mean, that would just be the worst. That would be so bad. I'm sure they tortured him. They couldn't get any info from him. He died in captivity. But they did learn things, apparently, from dealing with these greys. I thought this was a really interesting thing. The theory that these Iraqi scientists came away from is that they're not alive. They're alive, but they are what were called bio-robots. So that might be a, a translation thing of, like, a clone. But basically, the Iraqi scientists said they're disposable. Nobody's coming after these guys. If they crash land, it is... You know how in the Marines, no man left behind? Their rule is all men left behind. If you crash, you get shot down, they will never come after you to retrieve your vessel. That's really interesting because when we think about all the UFO stories we've heard about crash landings, off the top of my head, we I may be wrong, we may have covered one or two, but off the top of my head... Normally, these vehicles just crash, and the people are there, and the bodies are recovered, or they're not, or they're chased down, or anything like that. You very rarely, again, off the top of my head, I'm recording this at like 11 o'clock at night, but a UFO crashing, and then another UFO coming up to save those original crew members. I could be wrong. It's not common. So that would make sense if you had... And it would make sense, too, like when we were sending explorers from the old world, from Europe to the new world, they weren't like, oh no, King, we lost the ship. He's like, send all the ships to save that one. No, he's just like, ship's lost, dude. All your gold is floating around. <laughs> it's not floating around. It sank to the bottom of the ocean. The King's like, yeah, I'll just send more gold over. Saddam and his top generals would actually tour this facility east of Ebril. And they had seen the alien corpses themselves and seen the UFO themselves. A year after this UFO supposedly crashed in Iraq, they invaded Kuwait. Which was a real ballsy move. And it, I remember he was going in. I remember working for Saddam Hussein's council. Now, I remember watching the news back then. I was I, I was a teenager, but it was a real ballsy move. It was just trying to see. It was the same thing like when Russia invaded Georgia. Um, let's see what other people will do. Russia got away with it. Iraq didn't. They got attacked by us during the first Cold War. But this idea in this theory that whatever he found on this vessel emboldened him. He thought that it would allow him to do what he wanted to do, and it didn't. He went into Kuwait. He got kicked out. But that first war, when America pushed the forces back into Iraq, there was a big debate over whether or not we should just conquer Iraq or just push all the way in and take Baghdad and topple Saddam Hussein and all that stuff. And I remember watching that debate on television. As I'm sitting in Saddam Hussein's palace, I'm like, hey, guys, uh, I might have to go back to the United States. It's kind of spooky. But we chose not to. And then, of course, we went back in in 2003. But this story continues then. In 2003, when U.S. forces fully invaded Iraq, fully went into Iraq, 
Supposedly, a special forces unit was specifically sent to the Ebrol facility. But when they got there, the entire complex had been destroyed. There were explosives all in the underground cave system. They were all blowing up. Saddam Hussein's logic, if I can't have it, nobody can. And what's interesting is that was, that was, his, that was his logic when he was leaving Kuwait when he set all the oil fields on fire, caused that huge ecological disaster. If I can't have it, nobody can. And actually matches up to something that Saddam Hussein would do. That story is actually told by two Ukrainian UFOologists, Anton Anfalov and Lenura A. Azizova. And you go, that's weird. Why are Ukrainian UFOologists talking about a UFO that may have crashed in Iraq? UG, take us up in that carbon copter one last time. We're leaving behind Iraq. We're headed to Kiev. In the Ukraine. <laughs> Summer 1947, they're actually doing reconstruction after World War II. The Kiev Conservatory had been completely destroyed. And as they're moving aside rubble and having to dig a new foundation and fix all of this stuff, deep underground, they find a bullet-shaped craft. It had two seats in it. And the back end appeared to be missing. This one, based on estimates of soil and sediment around it, same thing, but based on scientific stuff around this vessel, it is believed to be 3,000 to 5,000 years old. People say that there were glyphs on the vessel itself that appeared to be in Sanskrit. And 10 years after this vehicle was found, just 10 years later, the war-torn Soviet Union launches the very first satellite humans have ever sent off into space. Were they able to reverse engineer this craft the same way that Saddam Hussein wanted to reverse engineer it? Whether or not there actually was a UFO crash in Iraq, we don't know. Like That story is told by those two Ukrainian UFOologists and they are connected to the other story in Kiev about the bullet-shaped UFO. But if the stories are true, we're looking at two vessels found 40 years apart. One that had crashed 3,000 years ago, and one that crashed in 1989. But they had the same shape, the same design. They both were two-seaters. They both had escape pods. But beside that, what if... Let's put on our conspiracy caps to wrap this up here. Is it possible that you could have a survivor of an alien craft back when people were looking up at the sky and seeing these burning craft coming down and thought it was witchcraft or thought it was the gods or thought it was fate, but really it was a high-tech vehicle out of control. The escape pod disengages and at least one of them gets away. The other one, irreplaceable. Just the bio-robot. So in the Ukraine... Was there a gray alien walking around in the 1500s trying to survive, doing whatever it could to stay alive? Even though it knew it was disposable, it still had a drive to exist. But not only exist, it still had a mission to study humans. So although it wanted to disappear into the wilderness, it still stuck close, watched people walk through the forest on their way home, 
The gray alien stood in the darkness and peered through the window, his families read by candlelight. It watched villages become towns and towns become cities. And the whole time it was steady in us. When people were fearing werewolves and vampires and evil eyes and witches, they should have been fearing the greys standing outside of their homes. Because despite the fact that it was billions of miles from its home planet, and it knew rescue would never come, it had a mission. Was that mission just to survey us? Or was that mission to begin interbreeding with us? To begin medical experiments on us? To begin testing our bodies for weaknesses? Who knows? It's one thing to be taken to Count Dracula's castle. It's another thing to be dragged off into the woods, taken to a cave, thrown down on a hard slab, as this crash survivor injects you with a toxin it brewed from local herbs. The blades are a little duller. The pain will be a little more intense. And as you feel that iron blade press against your abdomen, you will wish you were on board a high-tech starship underneath the supervision of several scientists as a laser scalpel cuts your skin. Instead, you feel the dull, cold cut of a handmade tool. The alien may not have everything it needs to perform a successful operation, but it will get the results done. And even if no one is ever able to read the results of his experiment, he has a mission to do. And he will fulfill it. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>